1: Welcome to What'd You Miss This Week. I'm Scarlett Foom. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal, Caroline Hyde, and Romain Bostick on Bloomberg Television, What'd You Miss? Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. This week was a big one for global trade as negotiations between the U.S. and China resumed in Beijing. Kyle Bass, founder and chief investment officer at Heyman Capital Management, wrote about what was at stake in Bloomberg Opinion. He argued that these negotiations represented a historic chance to restructure America's relationship with China and shouldn't be squandered for just any deal. We began our conversation with Kyle by asking him why he thinks the president could take the easy way out with China.
2: I think you've seen multiple press reports talk about the fact that the administration, who's done uh, an amazing work in confronting China on many of the different fronts that the U.S. should be confronting China on, to, given call it, given December's market decline in, in the equity markets, I think that uh, you see President Trump now potentially telling his team to just get a deal done. And, and uh, I think that would be a, a big mistake, uh, given the amount of work that his team has done you know, in all the different facets of our of our relationship with China, you know, to date, I think doing a deal only on trade, trade is but a small part of, of the global resettlement of our relationship with China.
3: So where should we focused on for you to call it a success? Is it about IP? Where, where's the key negotiation that you want to see a deal done on?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, there are so many different fronts that we need to be negotiating on. Number one, uh, you know, the, the Chinese steal roughly two to $300 billion a year of IP. It's hard to put a number on it, but whether you look at the Defense Department or, or the U.S. trade reps' reports to the White House, uh, it's somewhere in that category. And then you have, you know, industrial policy that circumvents WTO rules with subsidization of le- electricity and, and uh, property and all the things they do on their industrial policy. And then their geopolitical assertiveness and military assertiveness in the South China Sea and then now they've given us another thing to really think about with the internment of the million-plus Uyghurs in the Xinjiang region of China. I mean, there's so many different fronts we need to be confronting them on, and trade is so small. You know, uh, in, in the instance of, of trade, I think that's but maybe 10 to 20 percent of the argument.
1: That may be the case, but that involves a lot more people as well when you bring up geopolitics, for instance, and there is this March 1st deadline. What is the market pricing in here when it comes to any kind of agreement or anything concrete coming out of a China-U.S. trade discussion or discussion overall?
2: You know, what I see in the market is the market's got about an 80, 85 percent probability that a a trade deal gets done. And we believe that depending upon how the wind's blowing that day and how President Trump feels, that might be properly priced, meaning if, if what happens is we do a, a deal on trade and we elect to defer or discuss much later all of the more difficult issues, then uh, I think the administration gets a, gets a quote win and the markets rejoice briefly. But when you look at the, at the uh, underpinnings of our relationship uh, with China, it's at a very difficult place in, in its call, historical terms. And I think that, again, trade by March 1st may or may not happen. If the Chinese aren't willing to negotiate on some of the more difficult issues, I think trade rep Lighthizer uh, and his team won't engage in getting just a trade deal done unless President Trump uh, overrules them.
3: Carl, I'm interested in say we seemingly have a relatively successful deal written out. How do you ensure that the commitment remains to uphold what has been agreed? How do you think we manage to see the change in behavior be exerted by China in the longer term?
2: yeah I mean there's, again, this is difficult to cover in a few in a few minutes uh, here in our discussion, <laughs> but I think that the, 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 the agreement of course needs to be both measurable uh, and there also need to be p- uh, potential consequences for for uh, them uh, not upholding the agreement. You know, the old saying goes with China is, is look at what they do, not at what they say, uh, because they've said uh, for a long time that they'll implement various policies that they've never adhered to. And so I think it's important for any agreement, again, to be measurable and also punishable to the extent that, uh, that, that, that one side doesn't uphold their, their agreement. I mean, that's the difficult uh, dance that we do uh, with regimes like, like China.
1: You are a noted China bear. You mentioned in November increasing your short position against the Chinese yuan. Since then, we've seen the Chinese yuan strengthen. Why would Beijing let the yuan weaken, fall, and risk incurring the president's wrath right as the Chinese government is negotiating with the U.S. on some kind of deal?
2: Look, as you know, China purports to be the, fifth, the second largest economy in the world with 15% uh, share of global GDP. But if you look at cross-border currency settlement, according to SWIFT, less than 1% of the world settles in Chinese currency. So Chinese is really just a paper tiger. China's just a paper tiger. And I think that they have, they have done so much work in order to prop the yuan up or the RMB up uh, that uh, the funny thing is, is, it, is that we consider calling them a currency manipulator on the weak side. In reality, what they've been doing is, is intervening and strengthening their currency to hold their whole credit market together. So to your point, how much how what is their true pile of fx reserves worth worth how much money do they have in order to defend their currency before they have to let it go and i think as china becomes more a globalized and wants to become more of a real currency today it's not even a real currency uh being less than one percent of global settlement then true economic forces will act on it and that's when uh, you'll see a revaluation
3: what will be that tipping point when do you think that time will come to bear
2: You know, last year was the first year that China had a current account deficit, i.e. more money going out of China than coming in. Uh, And I think that they're so desperately short dollars that they need foreign direct investment, portfolio investment to hold everything together given the extent of of their credit. Uh, position that that they're in today, that uh, the tipping point will be, when you look at China from a macro perspective, they've got a current account deficit and they're running a massive fiscal deficit. So their consolidated fiscal deficit is a little bit north of 10% of GDP, including local government finance vehicles. Think about the U.S. We're now a little bit more than 4% of GDP and all the alarm bells are going off when China's at 10% of GDP. So China's starting to look like a traditional EM problem, meaning mm. they're, they're borrowing, tr- they've borrowed a trillion dollars in the global capital markets, uh, Chinese corporates have. Chinese banking system is more levered than any banking system's ever been in the world. And they're now running a current account deficit. So now they're a twin deficit country with d- reserves that are dwindling. And so when you ask when is the time, the, 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 I guess the answer is no one knows, but it sure is uh, worsening as we speak.
1: Well, speaking of debt problems, uh, there's a Bloomberg report, Caroline, about two large Chinese borrowers, China Mingcheng Investment and time, that missed payment deadlines this month, which just goes to the whole point of how uh, the over-leverage is a problem in
3: the China's corporate sector. And the concerning thing here is that these are two highly indebted big borrowers out there. Carl, your perspective here, we... How many defaults are we likely to start seeing? What sort of default cycle are we anticipating coming from China and who does it hurt?
2: Well, my view is, uh, you know, China works in two worlds. One, they work in their domestic world where it's r denominated. And in their domestic world, they, c- they control the price level. They control the police, the printing press and the narrative. China can really much control their domestic market almost ad infinitum. But uh, where you start to see defaults are when they borrow in dollars because uh, they can't manufacture dollars. And so you're gonna start to see them defaulting on dollar-denominated debts uh, over time. And so when you look at the number of corporate defaults and especially corporate defaults, defaults in dollars, that's where they're going to have a problem. If it's, if it's an R&B, they can sweep it under the mm-hmm. rug and print r You look at how, much, how many R&B they've printed uh, since their ascension to WTO, or more importantly, since 2009. You realize they've printed $30 trillion worth of RMB mm. if you look at the Chinese money supply. They've printed like it's the national pastime. It, they've, they've embarrassed the U.S., Japan, and, and Europe on the printing side. And so I think that's all going to come home to roost soon.
1: All right. Well, we'll see how that all plays out. Of course, uh, if any of that does, it would be an exogenous shock that the central bank would need to uh, factor in as well. In December, Kyle, you called for a mild U.S. recession for later this year, late in 2019. Not that the Fed is clearly in pause mode. Have you changed your outlook? Is that still your your base case scenario?
2: Yeah, I think if you look at, I'll give you a, a broader answer. If you look at Asia and you look at the subcomponents of Chinese industrial production, there four of the five of them are already in negative territory. If you look at Europe, Italy entered a recession, what, about a week and a half ago. Germany's internal numbers look like it will be in an official recession in the next three to six months. And the U.S. has this positive stimulus coming from the tax cut that we believe had a $250 billion impact last year. It'll have a $400 billion positive impact in total this year. But next year, it'll only be $150 billion. And you have to look at the deltas. So the delta from last year to this is plus $150, and the delta from this year to next is, call it, minus $250. So I think economic activity will begin to wane in the back half of 2019. And by the middle of 2020, we're most likely to be in a recession. And given the, the the let's say the the conflict between the Democrats and Republicans uh, in Congress, my my guess is the Democrats aren't going to let Trump stimulate going into an election year. They're a, they're, gonna, they're saying behind the scenes that he's taken the economy hostage and they're going to let him shoot it. And so, I expect uh, I expect the U.S. to be in a mild recession by uh, middle of 2020.
4: But has
3: Powell and the Fed got the message, Carl? What? You gave him an F in December. You said that really he'd failed, basically, certainly the emerging markets when they continued to hike. What sort of a path are they on now and what rating, what sort of score would you give him thus far?
2: Well, I mean, listen, we had the worst December in stock market history, right? The market dropped at 1.16% in a month. Think about this the, the the month they took lehman down when all of u.s banks were when all the u.s banks were insolvent we were lehman had come down worrying about aig we lost a little more than 10 percent that month we were down 16 percent in december um so you know the reason the reason i'm giving the central bank an f is look at what's happening in, in China and Asia, or call it Southeast Asia. Look at what's happening in Europe from the economic perspective. The US stimulated at full employment with our tax cuts. That stimulus is about to wear off. What I worry about is the last three recessions we've had in the US, we've cut rates 500 basis points. Now we can only cut them 225 or 250. And what, what was it like a week or two ago The San Francisco put out a, pet, a, a white paper about the benefits of negative interest rates? You know, I hope that's not where we're going, but we can only cut rates about 225, 250 BIPs hmm. to be at zero. So this this point of normalization should have happened long ago, not now. So they were really late in the cycle in raising rates, and now they're stuck. And so when we get into even a, a small recession, we don't have. The, I don't think we have the arrows in the quiver. And so let's hope that we learned something from Japan and Europe about negative interest rates. They destroy the banking sectors and they, they have not helped their economy whatsoever. I don't think that's the place we should go, but I, I guess what I'm telling you is sometime in 2020, interest rates could be a lot lower than they are today in the US.
1: So a final question to you, Kyle, when it comes to US stocks, do you think it's more likely that we will get a revisiting of the September highs first or a revisit of the December lows first?
2: Oh, I, I think there's a, look, uh, there'll be re- market rejoice. Uh, the markets will rejoice to the extent that we get to quote a win on a trade deal. It'll be short-lived. My my guess is by the end of this year, uh, U.S. market will be will be lower than it is today.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg.
1: After spending almost a decade in prison in his native Malaysia, he is now the head of the country's ruling party and its prime minister in waiting. His People's Justice Party supports the government of his former rival, Mahathir Mohammed, helping Mahathir oust former Prime Minister Najib Razak last year. Now, Anwar is traveling around the U.S. and Canada to speak about Malaysia's new government and urge support for it. We discuss the country's ongoing conversations with Goldman Sachs over the 1MDB scandal, Goldman commented to Bloomberg after the interview to say the 1MDB bond offerings were designed to raise money to benefit Malaysia and 100 percent of the net proceeds from the transactions were deposited into 1MDB accounts. Not a cent of those funds ever passed through any account controlled by Goldman Sachs, and none of the funds were moved or redirected under our authority. But before we got to Goldman, I began my conversation with Anwar by asking him what his message was to both foreign leaders and investors.
5: Well, our experience is rather unique, phenomenal change, we uh, transform uh, autocratic uh, regime into a vibrant democracy and um, we promote market economy and uh, wanting to bring back Malaysia as an important destination for foreign investments.
1: Bring back Malaysia, and that's interesting because obviously uh, the 1MDB scandal has been a bit of a setback for the country. Describe the impact that 1MDB has had on foreign investors uh, wanting to do business in Malaysia and with Malaysia.
5: Well, 1MDB is a key point with the worst form of governance, a very corrupt system, and complicit to the crimes of course, the involvement of some international financial institutions like Goldman Sachs. So um, with this uh, episode, people tend to be about suspicious because of the system of governance and the way we do things. But I have to assure them, look, that was in the past. Mm-hmm. The system is now transparent. We are more accountable to our policies, uh, to our actions, in our actions, I'm sorry. And, and therefore, we must be given the chance. Um, this is not usual when people rise up, various communities, various races, come up and say, we demand change. We must not uh, con- continue to support a corrupt regime.
1: Now, part of that transparency and change, of course, is to hold people accountable. It's been seven months since the former Prime Minister, Prime Minister Najib Brazak was charged, but the trial has yet to start. And this week, we saw yet another delay. Are you surprised by the delay? Does it signal anything?
5: Well, I think um, this new uh, regime um, probably We need to uh, be more um, ready and uh, professional in our uh, preferring a charge. Mm -hmm. But this also reflects a system that is uh, uh, democratic and uh, that the judiciary is independent. In the past, we would just direct the judges. But now, uh, we have to respect the rule of law and due process. It is exasperating. The, The people expect a faster... A quicker resolution. Some of the cases are so apparent and so clear. Mm -hmm. A Prime Minister receiving $2.6 billion uh, is not something which uh, is uh, acceptable. It's a personal donation into a personal account. So it is not a matter of proving a case, it's a matter of respecting the due process.
1: Still, as you said, uh, it's taking a long time and it's frustrating for people. Najib is becoming a more sympathetic character. He's been very active on social media. Uh, He's been criticizing the government and some say that he's regaining popularity. Do you worry that there will be a backlash against the government, especially when he says that um, the government has a political vendetta against him?
5: Well, uh, Najib has enriched himself. with the billions of dollars stolen from public purse, you can certainly certainly employ more staff, more people supporting through the social media and some, some other arrangements, mm. but that would not deter uh, the general militia uh, people from uh, condemning uh, the atrocities of the past, the excesses of the past, and uh, we'll just have to wait what more can be uh, told through the courts.
1: Now when it comes to blame, how much of the blame do bad actors in Malaysia versus outsiders deserve for creating this 1MDB situation? Is it 50-50?
5: No, I think the central, uh, the core uh, personalities are certainly the Prime Minister and his colleagues. Um, Some are trying to uh, navigate their ways, trying to join the uh, ruling coalition. But I think the Anti-Corruption Commission has made very clear that this is not to cover up your crimes. You have to face the music. Uh, But other than this, of course, the players, the international financial institutions are also at fault. I mean, you talk about business, you talk about commissions, you have a completely disregard regarding the rule of law, transparency, and whether the leader is corrupt or not. To some of the investors, the more corrupt you are, the easier you can, mm. we can do business with. We want to show that a transparent system should be the option, the choice for investors.
1: Now you mentioned Goldman Sachs earlier. Our audience wants to understand more about Goldman's involvement in 1MDB and what happens next. Give us an update because the finance minister, Lim, has says the government may drop criminal charges against Goldman if the firm pays $7.5 billion. Have there been any direct talks with Goldman
5: Sachs? There have been negotiations. Um, Of course, since negotiations are taking place, I'm not uh, in the position to say more, but it's important to know what uh, excesses and crime they committed, mm-hmm. I mean to obtain six hundred million dollar commission and then to um, ha- secure the bond and then two point six 2.6 billion return for Najib to this, to play out uh, according to his own personal um, whims and fancies this is of course not something uh, which is no- normal it runs contrary to all financial rules and regulations now whether we can um, achieve uh, finally, the settlement uh, of 7.5 billion or not will depend on the stage of the negotiations. But I think I support the position of the government now. We will not compromise. Well, they have not only stolen the money through commissions, but they have helped to destroy the economy and the confidence in the system. You,
1: just, you said $7.5 billion or not. Is that $7.5 billion number a justifiable penalty, given that the entire bond deal was for $6.5 billion and and Goldman, Goldman's take was a fraction of that? Would it make sense for them to pay the equivalent of the fees that they collected?
5: No, I, I leave it to the authorities, uh, the team, to decide the quantum. But uh, what is important to realize is that they were complicit to the crime. They, uh, the effect being the whole image of the country, the confidence of investors, and now the state of the economy. They must bear responsibility.
1: So you reject the argument that it was a few bad apples in the firm?
5: Well, um, for such a uh, figure, and uh, probably the highest commission that they've got is not um, feasible or tenable to assume that the higher and um, top personalities in Goldman Sachs is not aware.
1: Now should Malaysia safeguard itself in any way against foreign banks, against foreign institutions, foreign players?
5: No we have adequate uh, safeguards and policies and regulations. This, um, however, However, Uh, rigid the safeguard. If you have crooks running uh, the system, they can always navigate. So it is important to have institutions and rule of law and to have uh, credible leaders with very high ethical standards.
1: I need to ask you about China because China is also heavily invested in how 1MDB gets resolved. Its position here is kind of tricky though. What kind of relationship do you want to see between China and Malaysia as the Malaysian government works to resolve 1MDB?
5: Well, China is not involved directly or complicit to the crimes of 1MDB. I mean, they were brought in, if at all, at the last stage to try and resolve part of the funding, through part of the funding. But we have made it very clear to China, they remain a very important partner in trade and investments, and we want to work very closely with China. But then they have to accept the fact that this is a new democratic government very transparent and we are accountable to our people which means the initial uh, the original project the railway e- ACRL project must be reviewed mm. because we cannot defend the uh, original cost. now if the uh, we can achieve this understanding that the price is acceptable normal transparent and the project would uh, benefit also local contractors then we can proceed
1: and you're referring, of course, to the infrastructure deals that China struck with Najib. Um, you talk about transparency. Let's get some transparency on your own plans, mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Anwar. You are referred to as Malaysia's prime minister-in-waiting. What's the timeline for you to become prime minister?
5: You see, um, there was an agreement between, um, among the party leaders. It's not just Anwar and Mahathir um, uh, that I will assume office at the right time. Now, um, why don't we then fix a date? Now, in my discussions with Mahathir, I want him to be effective. Mm-hmm. I want him to be given the latitude to govern effectively. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we cannot give an immediate date. Would you be
1: happy to wait five years?
5: No, of course it's not five years because he has made it very clear that he will not exceed two years. And, and, but it's important to allow him to govern effectively because we are in a very difficult uh, and trying, trying times.
1: You know, I have to say I'm a bit puzzled by your alliance with Dr. M because he was your mentor, then he was your enemy after he betrayed you in the 1990s. He was also a mentor to Najib before turning on him. Why do you believe that Mahathir will do as he says and step aside for you within two years? What's different this time?
5: It's kind of between Anwar's personal predicament, the suffering that my wife and my children had to endure. And the country, the future of the country, the interests of the country must override, must take precedence. That I have to concede, number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, Mahadev has shown that he was and is prepared to take the blows. And uh, during the period, year or so before the elections, They went after him hard. And uh, now he, and then he was also committed to some of the reform agenda. He um, was given, I mean, the support because of his commitment to support the reform, which means judicial independence, free media, market economy, etc. So I think, therefore, however difficult it is, I must uh, concede. Mm-hmm. that uh, this uh, collaboration will be of great benefit to the people in Malaysia, as of all.
1: So you'll be patient and have faith. We've heard, though, that the prime minister is considering a cabinet reshuffle. Is that the case? And if so, what are, what are the reasons for him to do so?
5: You see, formation of the cabinet is discretion of the prime minister. Mm-hmm. I have said to him that um, I am staying out. Uh, And so that he has the space and latitude. But generally, I mean, of course, if he is going to have a reshuffle, he will have to consult party leaders. But he has said very clearly he has no interest to uh, have a reshuffle. Mm -hmm. And I take his word for it.
1: I want to get a sense of how you would, your government would rule differently. Uh, The new government's focus is really to clean up corruption, to rectify bad behavior. And under Mahathir, the government has banned, for instance, Israeli athletes from entering Malaysia later this year. And these are athletes that want to compete in a qualifying event uh, in Sarawak for the 2020 Paralympics. Israel says that this is anti-Semitism. Is that a fair characterization? And as Prime Minister... How would you handle this?
5: See, Mahade made it very clear. It's not anti-Semitic. He said we have exhausted all avenues expressing our concern for the plight of the Palestinians. We are not against Jews. We have never taken a position against any race. But uh, Dr. mahadev made the right decision because he said he has exhausted all avenues, at least to convey, to stop the atrocities against the Palestinians. And you can't take this as anti-Semitic.
1: These are athletes though. Nevertheless, let's move on to the economy because of course, economic concerns top of mind for voters in Malaysia and certainly investors in Malaysia as well. Talk about what Malaysia needs to do in the next five years to increase its economic competitiveness.
5: Well, other than transparency and good governance, we must then look at all possibilities uh, to ensure that we remain competitive and able to attract foreign investments. Mm-hmm. Rules, efficiency, ease of doing business and focusing on the major uh, categories of business that we would like to encourage, for example, digital economy, um, services sector, uh, high-end technology uh, in manufacturing sector. When these issues uh, will be, have to be made clear and we have to explain and efficient in executing these policies.
1: Now, last question to you. And I ask this because I was in Hong Kong in 1997. You were the finance minister of Malaysia during the 97 Asian currency crisis. And in retrospect, people say that Malaysia came out of it better than other countries, in part because Mahathir imposed capital controls. What is the lesson that you think we can take away from that period as we continue to deal with the fallout from the uneven growth that stems from the 2008 global crisis?
5: You see, the issue is more complex. For example, Malaysia stands unique because there was a budget deficit before that. And there was budget surplus before that. Mm-hmm. It stands unique because we have even prepaid more than two billion ringgit in the years. So because of the strength of the fundamentals and the funds at our disposal, we were never compelled to seek um, the funding from IMF as a last resort. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and therefore the measures undertaken, uh, according to Mahathir's recommendations, did work. But if our economy has been rotten uh, with huge deficits, um, I don't believe any measure would help.
1: Is that a blueprint for how we should tackle crises in the future?
5: Yes, which means we have to prepare now, not wait for the turbulence to happen. We have to have a a resounding, strong fundamentals and uh, manage our economy well.
1: Later on, we spoke with Brad Setzer, Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, about the euro area missing its mark. This week, we heard that industrial production fell at the fastest pace since the financial crisis. And now it's looking like expansion for the 19-nation euro area is at risk of barely topping 1% this year. Brad gave us his prescription for the economic slump and told us why he thinks now, more than ever, there is a clear argument for German fiscal stimulus.
4: Well, for a long time, there's been a case that Germany should spend more, largely to help its neighbors out, to help bring down Germany's overall External surplus, which is enormous, about 8% of Germany's GDP. Now there's a domestic case for the stimulus as well. Germany's own economy is slowing. Germany was actually one of the weaker euro area economies, both in the industrial production survey, but also with the Q3 GDP numbers were slightly negative, Q4 was only slightly positive. There's just basically a domestic as well as an external case for a fiscal expansion. When we talk about that case, though, I mean, somewhat counter that what Germany's done so far, you know, up until this point has been relatively good for their economy, despite some of the issues that they've had over the last, you know, I don't know, six or seven months. Is there an argument to be made that keeping these sort of twin surpluses going or at least not getting in the way of them uh, would still be prudent over the long term and that maybe the short term pain is worth it? I think there's a long-term argument that Germany naturally will run, because it's aging, Mm -hmm. a modest current account surplus. I don't think that explains an 8% of GDP current account surplus. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Germany now has a fiscal surplus of 2% of GDP. You could, not quite, 1.7. It could go to zero, run a balanced budget, and still provide its own economy with a substantial boost. Even judging Germany on the most prudent of measures there's scope for Germany to do more
3: I've lived in Berlin working for Bloomberg and this is cultural really. Uh, They do not like to spend. They want to be able to save. And in many ways, loosening the purse strings has been called on for years in the depth of the Greek financial crisis. Everyone was saying to Germany, please, you know, they're terrified of inflation because of their own history. And in particular, that's why we've always had Jens Weidmann of the ECB trying to pull back where the rest of the ECB is saying, you know, ignite. And Germany have always wanted them to pull back. How do you change that perspective? Mm. And also, where should they be spending in particular to get the most banged? For their buck, if they only just want to ease open a very little bit.
4: So, I think the fiscal surplus, you can argue it's cultural, Germans like to save. It's also political. Uh, With a coalition government, the Social Democrats have blocked tax cuts, Mm. the Christian Democrats have blocked spending increases. So, I think there's scope for a compromise. In some sense, how Germany spends right now maybe matters a little less than it did previously. Germany's own economy is basically stalled any increase in spending, any cut in tax, would generate a positive impulse for demand. But if you want the biggest bang for the buck, the obvious uh, place to look is to increase Germany's public investment, which Mm. has been low for a long time. (laughs) The only difficulty there is that doesn't uh, kick in quickly. So you could probably bridge to that with some more immediate measures. As you said at the outset, one of the arguments that people have made for a long time is that Germany should simply spend more because that would boost the rest of the euro area. It would boost its neighbors. That would probably be good for just sort of the sustainability of the project as a political entity mm. uh, that continues. If they were to increase spending on sort of domestic uh, investment infrastructure, would it, how big of an impact could it still have on its neighbors, the rest of whom aren't doing very well either right now? They could use it. Look, you can come up with a lot of different estimates. I like to use the IMF's <laughs> estimate for the amount of, that a fiscal stimulus spills over. Mm-hmm. It's about a third. So it's not huge, No, but right now way. it's helpful. The overall euro area could use some help too. With Merkel sort of on her way out eventually, do you think that they will sort of transition maybe Mm. to a political environment where something like this would happen? Well, the coalition agreement does envision a modest fiscal uh, stimulus this year. The German finance ministry, though, has had a long history of underestimating revenue growth. So Germany tends to outperform its own forecast. Will that continue? Perhaps, but maybe, just maybe, there is an argument that Germany should and will change. Two percent of GDP is a large fiscal surplus. you got a lot of space. One thing, we've been talking about the size of the fiscal surplus. We've been talking about the slowing growth. We haven't talked about the fact that bund yields are... uh, Basically back to zero on a nominal basis, I think negative on a real basis. And so how much does that bolster this argument, especially this now is the time moment that essentially money is free? You know, money's been free for Germany for a while. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it obviously enhances the financial case. Germany can make money over a five or even an eight year horizon by borrowing more. (laughs) Uh, I think finance Twitter has that one kind of right. When you have a negative cost of funds, your immediate priority doesn't need to be paying down your debt.
1: That does it for this episode of what You Missed This Week? If you like this, please make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to tune in to our Market Close show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.